Jovovich at East Carolina University with Civil War Talk Radio. Today we'll be talking with Stephen Woodworth, professor of history at Texas Christian University. Dr. Woodworth is the author or editor of numerous books on the Civil War, covering everything from traditional topics like Jefferson Davis and his generals and the art of command in the Civil War to relatively unexplored territory in While God is Marching On, the Religious World of Civil War Soldiers. We'll be back in a moment with Stephen Woodworth on Civil War Talk Radio. Computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Feel the adrenaline-pumping excitement of thoroughbred racing at Surfside Race Place at Del Mar, California's largest and most luxurious satellite wagering facility. Surfside features over 900 video monitors, plush dining and cocktail service in the Saddle Club, pro and college football weekends, daily and weekly cast drawings, plus free admission to night racing Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. Come to Surfside Race Place and experience our Las Vegas-style race book with 180 individual personal seats and interactive TV monitors. Have you had your adrenaline rush today? Call 858-755-1167 or visit online surfsideraceplace.com for more information and post times. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Woodworth, Professor of History at Texas Christian University. Good morning, Stephen. How are you doing? Good morning. Fine, thanks. Glad you could join us today. I like to uh, ask guests uh, often the same introductory question that people sometimes ask me, which is what got you interested in studying the Civil War in the first place? Well, like uh, so many Civil War historians, I have to say that uh, the works of Bruce Catton, uh, first uh, piqued my interest in the Civil War. And I read them as a boy and uh, became very interested. And then when I was 10 years old, my family visited Gettysburg, and that uh, further heightened my interest in the Civil War. Well, I, I think I'm going to have to stop asking that question because we all give the same answer. I had the same experience, and uh, so many people of, uh, of our generation, uh, sort of baby boomers, uh, plus or minus a few years sometimes, I think we all read Bruce Catton at some point and, yes. and, and uh, were moved into that. Did you grow up in the north or the south? In the north. I was born in Ohio and grew up mostly in Illinois. And uh, you teach now, however, at a southern university. That's right, Texas Christian University. Do you find that it uh, affects your interpretation of the war moving from one region to another? 
Uh, it does in a way. Um, the students are very respectful, and uh, perhaps some of the younger undergraduates are perhaps not as as deeply uh, emotionally invested in it as uh, as uh, ad- you know older adults would be. But um, it may affect it a little bit. I've, it's made me more aware of the attitudes of Southerners. It. it uh, I. I'm teaching uh, in North Carolina and grew up in Michigan, so I, I share that background of moving from one region to another and then teaching about the Civil War. And I do, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. There, there is a certain, uh, certainly a respect uh, students give to the instructors, but sometimes I sense they have a different uh, mindset, perhaps, uh, the way they learned about the war from, from folk processes. Exactly, yes. Now you're uh, you've written on a lot of subjects, uh, a wide range of Civil War subjects. Uh, what are you working on currently? Well, I am just working on putting the very finishing touches, uh, you know, lining up maps and illustrations for a large book on the Army of the Tennessee, tentatively entitled "Nothing But Victory," and that's uh, we hope will come out with uh, Knopf this fall. Uh, so it's it's just about done, and I'm gearing up for a, uh, a shorter work on uh, covering the Civil War between the Appalachians and the Mississippi, and so I'm, ju- I'm just getting going on that. So those are both Western theater. You're That's right. looking at the uh, uh, Army of the Tennessee and the Western theater. What? Uh, why, why the West? Uh, everybody knows all the important battles were in the East. That's where all the, the great parks are, and uh, mm-hmm. anything west of the mountains was just sort of uh, these, these armed mobs chasing each other around. <laughs> I, I can uh, hear your sarcasm there. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, of course, a lot of the parks are in the East, uh, there has, of course, there are a lot of parks in the West, too, including the oldest one. But um, there's been a lot of work done in the East. There's been a lot of study in the East. And it's gotten attention really from day one, even during the war. Look at where uh, Matthew Brady and the other Civil War photographers were running around, mostly in the East. There's been a lot of attention focused on that. But it was actually the West where the war was decided. When I say West, I mean West of the Appalachians. That was where the war was actually decided. It could perhaps have been decided in the East, but as it turned out, it wasn't. How, when you say it's decided in the West, uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, look by comparison, the war in the East you have uh, is generally war in Virginia, and it takes Union forces there four years to cover about a little less than I think a hundred miles from Washington to Richmond. Uh, if they were making that little headway in the West, uh, the war might still be going on now. But in the, I'm somewhat facetiously, but in the West. Yeah, quite a different story because of the different geography and the layout of the rivers, because of better Union commanders there, possibly better troops. I wouldn't insist on that too strongly. Um, Richard McMurray suggests that perhaps that might be, or seems to imply that might be the case. And then uh, because of the opportunities for joint operations between the Union Army and Navy, uh, they were able to make much greater strides in capturing territory in the southern heartland that ultimately rendered the South uh, incapable of carrying on the war further. Just to uh, to push that point a bit, a, a counter-argument might be that the territory is ultimately not what decides the Civil War. And it's true the Union had greater mobility with the rivers, uh, but, it's, it, but territory only gets you so far if, if the other side wins the battles. And it's really superior leadership in the West that makes a difference. Well, certainly superior leadership is important, and the Union has it in the West. Um, what what the are some examples? Uh, 
you would cite there? Of, of territory. Well, for example, the loss of Nashville and the Nashville Basin was a tremendous blow to the South. Very early on, they lost a lot of very important industrial capacity. And by the way, it's interesting, a problem that the South faced, that the Confederacy faced, was that uh, most of their manufacturing capacity, what manufacturing capacity they had, which wasn't most, which wasn't much, lay near their northern boundaries, near their boundary with the, uh, with the enemy. So they lost the Nashville Basin very early on. Uh, the basin provided a lot of agriculture, a lot of foodstuffs, horses, and Nashville itself was an important industrial center. They lost all that, and uh, I think that handicapped them seriously afterwards. Then Corinth, the loss of rail communications, Memphis, another important city, New Orleans, very important financial center, largest city in the south. All those things told heavily on the south, and I'm not going to say that the loss of territory alone and by itself decided the war, but it hurts. And there certainly is much more movement there in the west than in the east. Yeah. What about those leaders? You've written on uh, Confederate leadership quite extensively. Uh, what, what, was the, what was Braxton Bragg's problem? Let's put it that way. <laughs> Leonid is Polk. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, succinct answer. Uh, well, that was part of it, yes. Yeah. I mean, if, to, to be a little more serious and, and look at Bragg himself, he was no kind of a politician at all. He was inept in personal relations. However, even a very skillful man in personal relations like Robert E. Lee, who was one of the best, doubted that he would get cordial cooperation from the generals that Bragg had to work with in the West. So you would suggest people like, like Polk, uh, perhaps Hardy, and others were more to blame for Confederate command issues than Bragg himself? Yes, I would say so. Definitely. Interesting. So if, uh, if Bragg had had better subordinates, then uh, he, he might not be the sort of watchword for, uh, for poor leadership that, that his name has become. Definitely. Even his enemies admitted that he was a fine administrator and uh, trainer of troops. His movement from North Mississippi uh, via Mobile to Chattanooga was the largest rail movement of troops, I believe, in the world up to that time, largest and longest. And then his march turning Buell out of, uh, out of Tennessee and back into Kentucky was very good strategically. Uh, his tactics were not very strong, but uh, the, the dirty little secret is really nobody's tactics were very great in the Civil War. Well, that's an interesting point. Maybe we can get back to that because I, I agree with you, and I, I think there's some, some issues to explore there. What about on the Union side? Uh, you mentioned Buell being outflanked by... Uh, by Bragg. Buell was certainly not a shining light. Uh, <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. Uh, he was uh, like George McClellan without the charm. Uh, I think the best thing for the, you know, that you can say about Buell and the Union High Command in the West is that it was a good thing for, for Union High Command there that Buell was soon sent packing. Uh, I think the, the real quality in the Union High Command in the West is Grant, who is, I believe, Maybe the military genius of the war, perhaps one of the two military geniuses of the war, maybe that would be better. Certainly the North's military genius, and uh, he is the reason for Union command success in the West. Now, a few, <coughs> excuse me, in, in an earlier show I was chatting, I believe it was John Y. Simon, and we were discussing the reputation of U.S. Grant. He, he's, of course, the editor of Grant's papers. Mm-hmm. And we were discussing how reputations fluctuate over time. A uh, hundred years ago, you would have had historians or military analysts 
saying that Lee is the great genius of the war and Grant is a mere butcher. Uh, you don't hold that view clearly. No, definitely not. What What is it that... Where, where is Grant's genius found? What, what are examples of it? Well, I think one of the best examples is the Vicksburg campaign. Uh, first, there, there's his persistence, of course, prior to uh, April of 63, but then beginning in April of 63, you have this incredible campaign uh, in which you might say that, that Grant's name might be audacity because it's extremely audacious, moves down the west bank of the Mississippi, has the gunboats run past the Vicksburg batteries, knowing that this is a no-return operation. Uh, if this operation fails, those gunboats, and it will be the best of the fleet that have passed the Vicksburg batteries, may be able to join banks down at Port Hudson, but they won't be able to cooperate with Grant any further in taking Vicksburg. He goes ahead and does that. that that's because of the current of the river. They can't go north again. Right. The, the right. current at Vicksburg is fairly strong at that time. Now the river has changed its course there, so that can all be different today. But the uh, gunboats could not have ascended the river past the Vicksburg batteries. So that was a one-way operation. He, he moves his army past Vicksburg on the west bank, which in itself was a very difficult uh, operation through the swamps and, and back channels of the river, then crosses over to the Mississippi side. And one thing that's often overlooked in this is that uh, throughout the campaign, Pemberton and the Confederates had more troops available in that in their area, in central Mississippi than Grant did. And yet at every one of the battles that are that are fought during that campaign, Port Gibson, Raymond, Jackson, Champion Hill, and Big Black Bridge, Grant has a numerical superiority, or at least potentially numerical numerical superiority at, at Champions Hill, his uh, one of his corps commanders decides not to take part, so he fights with about equal numbers. Hmm. Despite the fact the Confederates outnumber in the region. So, and that's due to Grant's generalship and getting his people to the right place at the right time. Exactly. Grant... Yeah. Go ahead. Is, go ahead. Oh, that, that for you, you're the guest. Okay. Well, I was going to say that what, what Grant does so well in that campaign is that he assesses the situation, makes a decision about what to do next, and puts that decision into operation while his enemy, Pemberton, and Pemberton's lieutenants are still trying to figure out what's going on. Now... In regard to the Vicksburg campaign, um, Albert Castell, a historian I know you're familiar with, mm -hmm. has argued uh, in print that Vicksburg was unimportant uh, compared to the attention it normally receives, uh, and further that uh, Grant, or especially Sherman, uh, I should say, uh, are highly overrated as Union generals. Uh, you, you had an exchange in print with him, which uh, I, I thought you did a very marvelous job uh, maintaining your composure. It's sort of an exchange. Uh, uh, sort of an exchange would be a good way to put it, in North and South Magazine, and listeners are, I'm sure, familiar with that, that, that fine publication. Uh, what was he saying about Sherman, and why was he so wrong, in your view? Well, why he is so well, maybe, maybe I should ask you your view, and, and okay. rather than force well, you to put something on someone else. I would rank Sherman as the third greatest general of the war, right behind Grant and Lee. Now, saying that is not the same as saying that uh, Sherman was a copy of Grant or Lee. He was not. And Castell's criticism of Sherman seems to focus on pointing out that Sherman was neither Grant nor Lee. Sherman had some weaknesses, um, but then so does everyone. So does every general. Um, Sherman's weaknesses were uh, he was weak on offensive tactics, but again, that was pretty widespread. 
most Civil War generals uh, learned to overcome, if they, if they became great, learned to overcome their weakness of their offensive tactics, I believe, by practicing superior offensive operational skill so that they could bring overwhelming force to bear on the battlefield. That was Grant's solution. That wasn't Sherman's solution. His solution was more on the strategic level once he was given the opportunity to practice it. But um, I think in the Vicksburg campaign, Sherman's performance was uh, quite satisfactory. I don't think that there's really any room for uh, criticism of Sherman. He, he uh, performed very reliably. Castell tends to minimize any success that Sherman has. Anything that Sherman does well, well, that was just common sense. Anybody could have done it. Any fool would know that you should do that. Well, that's an easy criticism to make regarding history. But uh, if it was really so easy, good generals would have been a dime a dozen, and that wasn't the case. Uh, Karl von Clausewitz, the great Prussian philosopher of war, said that uh, in war everything is simple, but the simplest thing is very difficult. And it's one thing to sit here 100, 140 years later and say, well, we can see where Sherman could have done this and could have done that. It's another thing entirely for someone back there actually to be able to do that. I I'm, uh, could not agree with you more on that point. I think it's, it's very easy to Monday morning quarterback uh, generals from the Civil War or any historical era uh, to take the example of McClellan, who is, is frequently give, cited as an example of someone who, who should have done better, should have been more decisive at Antietam and so forth. Uh, certainly that, that may be the case. But he was able to administer uh, 100,000 people, and I don't know many of my friends who have 100,000 subordinates uh, whom they can manage successfully. Uh, most of us don't rise to that level where we have that much responsibility. Not to say every Civil War general was, was therefore a good general just by being in charge, but it's, it's very easy to underestimate how difficult it was to do just the simple things, as, as you cite Clausewitz for, for noting. Just to get an army from one place to another took a huge amount of talent. Yes. Definitely. And I think that that's a good point. And it, regarding um, Civil War generals in, in general, if I may say, mm-hmm. it's easy to play the what fools they were school of interpretation, as, as my friend Mark Grimsley sometimes says. Uh, it's easy to point out where they erred. But uh, even the worst Civil War generals were made generals because they were very successful in some aspect of life before that. It might be politics, which perhaps didn't prepare them very well for uh, command on the battlefield. But nonetheless, these were very successful, highly qualified men who had resumes that convinced somebody to make them a general. And uh, yet sometimes, if we're not careful, we can wind up thinking of them as, as complete buffoons on the battlefield. I suppose we, we measure them against one another. Uh, like watching Major League Baseball players, somebody drops a fly ball, you say, oh, what a what an idiot, what an uncoordinated fool. Uh, but even the worst bench warmer in the major leagues uh, is a better hitter than you, you are, or I am. That's for uh, sure. By a factor of a hundred. Yes. Uh, they're all good. Yes, and for example, Pemberton in the Vicksburg campaign, Pemberton comes out looking very, very poor. And I think, as Civil War generals go, he was probably in the, not in the top half. But up against Grant, uh, he's made to look very poor. It would be hard for any of us to look good against Grant. We're going to come back, uh, take a little break here, and we'll come back and talk more about uh, some elements of the Civil War that don't get talked about very much. Uh, This is Jerry Prokopovich with Stephen Woodworth on Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 